So I was at my sister's wedding a few weeks ago and I was in the wedding party. My whole family was the logistics of all of that can be a bit stressful because I had my three small boys with me and you know the way it is guys, girls, they separate on the day. So I had to get my boys ready, but have no fear. There was a bucket of beer on ice and you know that for every shoelace I tied, every button I did up, every pant leg I pulled up, there was a guzzle of beer in between all of that. You know it. So it was fun. Fun but stressful. Anyway, on the limo ride to the ceremony, I got to talking to one of the groomsmen, and he was telling me he did a four-year psychology course at university, spent over forty grand, And this is kind of where the inspiration for this podcast is coming from, was this conversation. Spent over 40 grand on this course. And I said, so what do you do for employment these days? He said, I'm in sales. I'm like, wow. I said, so you spent all this money on this course, spent all this time, and you're not even in a job related to what you took in university. Well, you know, he he, he did say he's got a plan going forward and it was a positive plan. And that's, that's cool. That's good. But there's a lot of people out there that are taking these bullshit university courses that are going to get them nowhere in life. Some of the courses in university are good, okay? I'm not saying they're not all good. Some of them are, but there's university courses for Harry Potter. When you get out of university and you took a Harry Potter course, what are you going to do with that to gain income? If somebody's got a way to gain income from that course, please message me and tell me because I'm baffled by that. So when I was in high school, the trades were never a viable option for the counselors. It was always university. It was always college. Okay. And when I was in high school, this baffles my mind. The people that were troublemakers or didn't get good grades, guess what? They were shipped to a high school that taught them trades. Unbelievable. Unfriggin' believable. So... You had to be a troublemaker or not be very smart to go to a school where you got taught the trades. It should be an option for everybody, not just the people that don't want to learn in a regular high school. I don't know if they're pushing the trades these days in high school. So if, if they are, somebody please message me and let me know because that'd be interesting to know the difference between when I was in high school 21 years ago to now. But guess what, guys? There's a lot of people leaving the trades. And if you listen to the last podcast with Rick, he discussed that. There's a lot of people leaving and not enough people coming into the trades. All right. I chose to go to a trade school. And it was the best damn thing I ever did. Okay. My parents couldn't afford to send me to university to be a doctor or a lawyer or any of those big money types of jobs. So choosing a trade school was the best thing that I did for me at that point in time because I learned a lot. And now now I'm in a position where I'm making good money. I have work every day. All right. It's allowed me to move on and create this whole HVAC know-it-all project, which is moving me forward as well. Okay. I'm not interested at this time of my life to own my own business. I'm really not because there's so many hoops to jump through. I have a young family. You know what I mean? I don't want to be working 18 hours a day and never see them. I like having a job where I work in a team. All right. I like going home for dinner at night 
when I can if I'm not working late. So this is me right now. And going to trade school put me in this position. And learning what I learned through the years put me in this position. I have work every day and I'm making good money. If I chose to take that Harry Potter course in university, I don't know where I'd be right now. So that's what I'm going to discuss going forward in this podcast is my experience with trade school and my thoughts on trade school. I'm also going to touch on my experience with some duck teeters and a learning curve I had, and I'm going to hit you with some pump tips sponsored by Armstrong. That's coming up right now. This podcast is sponsored by fieldpulse.com. You guys want to go paperless, paperless billing, invoicing, fleet management, all-in-one service business software. You guys need to check it out and get your 14-day free trial at fieldpulse.com forward slash hvacknowitall or go to hvacknowitall.com and slide down the homepage to the sponsored logo. Click on that to start your 14-day free trial. So I need to go over some of the products offered by my sponsors because they're great products that will help any tech in this field do their job better. The Testo 316-3 electronic leak detector is a badass leak detector. Heated diode technology, it's found leaks for me left, right, and center. R22, 407C, 404A. I've read reports and reviews in my HVAC hub on Facebook about how well it did tracking down leaks for 410A. Go to testo.com and check it out, guys. The Testo 316-3 electronic leak detector. So Yellow Jacket has come out with a pretty cool manifold. Now, we all know the Series 41 manifold. That is the old school manifold that most of us have in our trucks. What they've done is they've taken the compound gauges off and replaced them with digital gauges on that same manifold set. I think this is brilliant because the techs that are on the fence about going digital, now you can have that old school feel, but still get that digital readout, okay? Digital readouts are way more precise and accurate than reading a needle off a gauge. Go to yellowjacket.com, HVAC and our products, scroll down the page, boom, they're right there. Check them out. Refrigeration Technologies, what more can I say? A plethora of amazing products. John Pastorello, CEO, who is also a refrigeration tech and a chemist, wanted to develop products for the HVAC in our industry that would help us in the field, and he has. And Nylog Blue is one of those products. Fabulous, fabulous product. It's made from refrigeration oil, okay? It's not going to contaminate a system. It is the best thread sealant and gasket sealant on the market for this industry, hands down. Go to refrigetech.com to check out more on Nylog Blue. True Tech Tools. Tons of tools in their tool store, guys. Pick one at checkout. Save 8% on that tool purchase by using promo code KNOWITALL. K-N-O-W-I-T-A-L-L. So what is a pump mechanical seal? Well, it's very, very simple, actually. So let's break it down like this. We have a motor and we have a pump. 
that motor, when it drives, is going to drive that pump, and it's going to start pumping the fluid within the system. In order for that motor to drive the pump, we need a coupling in between. Okay, so once that's all set up, we need to prevent the liquid that's inside the system from leaking out. Okay, so that pump shaft that's connected to that coupling will have a dry side and it will have a wet side. Okay, we need to prevent that wet side from leaking out. So how do we do that? Well, we do that with a mechanical seal. Okay, without that mechanical seal in place, you could have a slow drip or you could have a major leak. A couple of years ago, I walked into a boiler room on a service call. Okay, there was three boilers on the ground floor in the boiler room and on top of a mezzanine, there was two pumps. Okay, when I walked into the room, the mezzanine was overflowing like Niagara Falls. I'm not kidding. It was bad. And it was overflowing onto the electrical components that were mounted to the wall. Disconnects, control panels, splitters, you name it. I don't know how we didn't have more of a disaster on our hands, but I, I was able to isolate the pump that was leaking so we could get rid of that water. But it was because the mechanical seal of the pump had failed. Now, I told you I'd be working with Armstrong over the next few weeks, few months to bring you guys some pump tips, and we'll be sharing those on social media. But for now, I'm going to share those with you on the podcast. Okay, I know it's, it's harder to listen and you might have to replay it to soak it in. It's not like reading it and you can go back to it to reference. But mechanical pump seals, guys. So silicone carbide seals outperform tungsten carbide seals by having a lower coefficient of friction, greater hardness, better thermal conductivity to dissipate localized hotspots, and lower expansion. So... Silicone carbide, guys, outperforms tungsten carbide. Keep that in mind. For glycol mixtures greater than 30% concentration by volume, silicone carbide is recommended for both seal faces. So if you guys are working on glycol and it's more than 30% concentration, keep in mind that silicone carbide for both seal faces is recommended for that application. Okay? Always ensure... Your seal flush lines are open during operation because you don't want to run a pump dry. It can cause over, overheating and failure. So installing flush line indicators will give the service tech a clue as to whether the valves are closed or the flush line is clogged. So that's very important, guys. Your seals, if you start your, your pump up and the seal is dry, it could damage it. So you need to keep those seals lubricated. And, and what what Armstrong is trying to tell you is those flush lines are a great idea and putting in flush line indicators to know if they're working correctly will give you more information when you're doing your PMs and service. For more information on pumps, guys, check out armstrongfluidtechnology.com. This episode of the HVAC Know-It-All podcast is brought to you by Armstrong. See, I went to a trade school. And I actually enjoyed my time there. But how I got to that point of going to trade school was, I wouldn't say a long process, but a drawn out one. Because when I was done high school, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. 
I had no real inspiration or aspirations or real interests, to be honest, to um, progress in my life at that point. And looking back, I'm kind of upset with the with the schooling system because they didn't prepare. They didn't prepare us for what was next. At least not me anyway. There's a lot of my friends that most mostly female, they were off to university and some of them were going to um, dental college and stuff like that, but I had no idea what I was going to do. So my father was on my case about this constantly. And I remember one day he brought home a video and I have no idea where he got this video, but it was all about becoming a stonemason. I got about two or three minutes into the video and I'm like, nope, that's not for me. The video is a bunch of guys, filthy, lugging around heavy stones, climbing up scaffolding, not unlike HVAC, eh? carrying around heavy equipment, climbing up ladders and being dirty. <laughs> so... But I'll tell you, I don't know, it just wasn't for me watching this video. But I have a lot of respect for, for guys that do that kind of stuff because it's, it's a very skilled trade. I have a friend that does it, and he came and helped me with my fireplace. And I was very impressed with his skill because it turned out amazing. So we finally decided on refrigeration, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. And there was a local school that was teaching it, and it was called Humber College in Toronto, Ontario. Fabulous, fabulous school. Now, I signed up, and it wasn't much more than two grand for the year, which compared to university costs, it's a fraction. So I, I was enjoying it. I was really enjoying what I was learning. We did a bit of hands-on, not a lot. It was mostly classroom stuff, which I was always pretty good at. I mean, I was always pretty book smart. I always got good grades in high school and graduated with honors. But it was the tools, the tools that got me. Because I had no, really, no real experience with tools growing up. Now, my dad, he worked with tools all the time. He was a technician in his trade. Now, growing up, we lived in, until um, I was about nine years old, we lived in, a, in an apartment building. And then we lived in a townhouse complex that did all the maintenance for you. Snow removal, cutting the grass, replacing roofs, windows, fences, you name it. So it's not like I had the opportunity to, to get into that kind of stuff growing up. So I think that's where a bit of a, I lacked a little bit in getting to know the tools is because all that maintenance was taken care, taken care for us. But that's neither here nor there. That was something that I had to get over the hump myself. But I went to school and I did a two-year course at Humber College. And when I was done, I had the basic knowledge, the basic book knowledge not applicable knowledge, but the basic book knowledge of refrigeration, electrical, natural gas, 
refrigerants. And then I got hired by a company shortly after. Now I'm still with that same company now. So it's been a committed relationship on both ends. But back then when I, when I graduated, I walked into the company with the book knowledge and the basic knowledge, but I hadn't seen anything really working in real life. And I hadn't really used tools. So that was a real struggle for me. You know, I didn't really know how to, how to double wrench, use a backing wrench on stuff. And, and, and I felt very awkward at times and I didn't even know how to take a belt. You want to hear a funny story? I didn't know how to take a belt off an exhaust fan. So I was working with a mechanic one day and we're about done for the day. And he goes, Oh, I forgot to change the belt on that exhaust fan. He goes, can you run up and do that? He went into the building. He was doing up his paperwork. And I go up. I can't get the belt off. I'm like, I don't know how you do this. So I ran down to my truck real quick. I grabbed a pair of tin snips, of all things, and I cut the belt off. Incredible. But I managed to get the new one on. And I started the thing back up. And I didn't even tell the guy what I had done, which was a, which was a mistake because I could have learned something. I should have said, Hey, how do you get the belt off? But I cut it off with tin snips, but listen, as I progressed and, and, and the way things work, maybe I should, maybe I should go back a little bit. So the, the way things work in Ontario here is we do a five year and I'm in, I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and we do a five year apprenticeship. And during that five-year apprenticeship, you go to three blocks of training. That's mandatory. You go to basic, intermediate, and advanced training for two months at a time. So with my basic knowledge that I did at Humber College and then a couple of years in the field, when I went to my basic block of training, I was way ahead of everybody else there. And I'm not saying I was smarter than anybody else there. I was just ahead because I took that two-year course at Humber College. Now, I met a lot of good people that I still am in touch with today. And those people are, are actually good contacts in the field nowadays as well. People that I can message or ask questions about or, or, or to lean on. I mean, it doesn't happen very often. But they're there if I wanted to reach out in their specific field. I have that relationship. Now, going to school is not just about creating relationships. It's about being in an environment where everybody else is on the same playing field. Because if you just jump into the trade as an 18-year-old kid right out of high school, you're in the game. You're with the big boys now. So you have to perform. But when you're in school, you get to learn at the same pace as everybody else in a learning environment. There's no stress of the customer breathing down your back or you losing money for the company. It's a really stress-free stress environment that you can learn in. Now, that's what I enjoyed the most. And I don't think that I really realized that until I went back to my basic training.
So when I was at Humber College, I didn't know what it was like to be in the field. But every day we'd come into class, we'd do this or that, and we'd all joke around. We'd, but then when I got into the field, the stress level just shot through the window. Shot through the window. And I was stressed out every day. My stomach hurt going into work. And it wasn't a good time. I came out of it okay. And I came out of it for the better. But when I went back to my basic block of, of training, and I went back into this stress-free environment with all these other people on the same level as me, I realized, hey, this is the place to learn. This is a good place to learn. I better take advantage of this because nobody's breathing down my back. There's a teacher in the classroom that's kind of like the equivalent to your boss, but he's not losing money if you screw up. So he's not going to be breathing down your back. So going to school, if you want to go into the trades, taking a course beforehand, I recommend and I highly recommend it because it's going to put you ahead of the game. It's going to put you into a stress-free environment where you can learn at your own pace. And you can learn at a pace with other people, peers in the industry that are on the same playing field as you. So, so guys, if you're thinking about getting into the trade, even if you have gotten into the trade and you've just started, I'm telling you right now, if you want, if you want to take a break, get out of it, and you might be making some good money, you might have a family to support and you can't, but listen, if you have the opportunity to go to school first, I highly recommend it. Okay, so I've given you my opinion on trade school. So I don't think we need to discuss it any further because my opinion is not going to change. If you guys can afford to go to a trade school, if you have the money to do it and you have the time to do it, I think it's a great opportunity and a great learning experience to put you ahead of the curve. I know a lot of people that went to trade school and they benefited from it. I know some people that didn't and they're still good techs. Okay, so you have to decide what's best for you. But that's my opinion on it. So moving forward, I wanted to speak about duct heaters and the applications that I've seen them in and used them in to solve a problem. Now, I bring up duct heaters because... I had a, an interesting experience and a learning experience on duct heaters this week. So I wanted to share that with you. So let's start by basically what a duct heater is, is basically an assembly of heaters and electrical components built up. Okay, you cut a hole in the duct, you slide it in. And you, you connect the thermostat to it, you power it up, you have the electrician come in, you power it up. And now you have a heater in line with a duct, okay? Now, the three scenarios that I've seen them in are very, very similar. The first one being a lab that I work on quite regularly. So the lab and the office beside it are served by one rooftop unit. Now, you can see this being a bit of a problem because the lab... The lab has special equipment, the lab has special products and a process, and they need to keep the temperature at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, the people sitting in the office, 70 degrees, depending on the person, is a bit, is a bit on the chilly side. So 
they were complaining that they were too cold all the time. So we're like, okay, this is a design flaw from the beginning that should have been thought of because it really is. They should have zoned that system in the beginning. But zoning a system is actually quite expensive because there's controllers, there's dampers, there's all the labor, wiring. So <clears throat> a very economical solution is to put a duct heater in line with the duct that serves the office space. So we put the duct heater in and install the thermostat on the wall. So now they can set that thermostat to what they want. It's going to reheat that air back up. And now they're comfortable in that space. We haven't had a complaint since. So for lack of a better term, it's almost like a Band-Aid solution. Almost. But it's a permanent Band-Aid. And I say Band-Aid because it's something that should have been thought of in the planning process when the offices and the lab were built. But like I said, it's a permanent Band-Aid that will solve the problem long term which it has. The next scenario, very, very similar, but a bit different, in the, in the actual same building that this lab and office exist in, there's a warehouse. That warehouse is served by four rooftops, and the warehouse is kept also at 70 degrees. And off of that warehouse is, is an office. Okay, In that office is where some of the maintenance employees sit and do their paperwork, and again, there's, there's a duct that comes down from the warehouse rooftop, and there's a branch duct that goes off of that into the office. And the warehouse is kept at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So the people in this office are getting cold. So again, we put in a duct heater just to serve the duct, the, the portion of the duct that serves that office. Okay, put a thermostat in, they set it to what they want, and boom, they're off to the races. They're comfortable in there. So this last scenario is actually where I had my learning experience just a few days ago. I responded to a call. The room was too cold. It was a meeting room where they held events and they did seminars. And basically, the way the setup works is there's a server room right beside the meeting room. That server room is kept at 68 degrees Fahrenheit and it's served by a rooftop. The meeting room is also served by that same rooftop that's providing cooling most of the time. So that, that portion of the duct that comes off to this meeting room is providing cold air. So we put a duct heater in. Again, ran a thermostat. Now they can set the thermostat to whatever they want. That duct heater is going to reheat the air going into that space and warm it up so it's comfortable for the occupants in that room. So I had a service call on that same unit. The room was too cold. I turned I turned the thermostat up all the way, okay, just to see what would happen. The room didn't get warmer after 5-10 minutes, so I set up a 12-foot ladder because the thing is 15 feet in the air. Lucky me. I opened it up. I saw that the control board inside the duct heater was flashing and flickering from time to time. Now the light should be on all the time. I checked input voltage to it. It was good. I checked my DC signal coming back from the stat. It was 10 volts DC. It was calling for full heat. So I was leaning towards the circuit board. The only other thing left was two terminals labeled A and A. Okay. 
And that's for an air sensor that goes out into the airstream. So I was leaning towards the circuit board or the control board. So I called up tech support and I told him what I was finding. He told me to pull one of the sense, one of the wires labeled A off of the board that go out to the air sensor. As soon as I did that, boom, it lit up. Everything was good. Now he told me that that was a thermistor. Okay. And that thermistor at 70 degrees Fahrenheit should be reading around 12 K ohms. I checked and it was, it was close enough to 70 degrees in the duct at the time because the cooling wasn't running at that time. So the duct was just moving, moving, uh, ventilating air. And it was nowhere near 12 K ohm. I don't even think it was 1 K ohm. I think it was underneath that at that point in time. So that was the problem. So I ordered a new thermistor and I ordered a new control board because the thing had been flickering and cycling so much that I didn't really trust it anymore. And it was only 75 bucks. So I ordered a new one. Okay. When the new one came, when the new sensor came, I measured it at 70 degrees. It was 11.7 K ohm. Pretty damn close to 12 K ohm. All right. So here's the learning curve. I thought that those two wires going out into the airstream was an air proving switch of some sort. I thought that because I had never taken this apart because I never had a problem with it before. I thought it was like more of a hot wire anemometer style where it was picking up the airflow and giving the signal back to the control board. But it wasn't. It was a thermistor. Now I'm thinking to myself, how does a thermistor prove airflow? How does it know that air is actually moving across it? So I called tech support again and I said, I really want to know how this this thermistor works at proving air. He says, well, it doesn't really prove airflow. What it does is that it does nothing, absolutely nothing in the circuit until the temperature around that thermistor reaches 125 degrees Fahrenheit. When it reaches 125 degrees Fahrenheit, what it does is it starts dialing back the solid state relays that control the heat output to the electric heaters. So it's basically acting like a limit switch. Now, if you guys have never seen these solid state relays, basically what they do is they control the output. So the contactor for the heaters is pulled in all the time. All right. Now these solid state relays, they control the output to the heaters. So we're not banging on and off a contactor every time we have a call to maintain set point. It has a smoother transition with the solid state relays. So that's what it was. It was a thermistor and it was there to monitor the temperature of the air around the heaters to make sure it didn't get to 125 degrees Fahrenheit. If it did, it dialed back the solid state relays to drop that air temperature off acting as a limit switch. There was also a manual high limit in there that if, if it tripped, you could reset it. So there was two types of limits in there acting as safeties. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention about duct heaters, and I've had this experience before, is if the duct heater is not long enough, and this is very important, if the heater is not long enough to go across the whole width of the duct, and you have an air gap on the one side, like two or three inches of air gap, what can happen is that you're not pushing all the air or forcing all the air through that heater you can actually set that heater off on high limit. So we've had this, this scenario in our company 
where basically the duct heater was not long enough to go across the hole with the duct. We had to pull it out and create a blank off plate and put it back in. Putting that blank off plate there forced all the air through that heater. And that stopped it from going off on high limit. Crazy, right? So there's there's something that you guys could learn from. I learned from that as well during that scenario. That wasn't my job, but I kept hearing about it. And I would ask questions on how it was solved. And that's how it was solved. We blanked off that air gap to force all the air through the heater instead of bypassing some of the air. So guys, that's the podcast for today. All right. My experience with school, my experience with duct heaters. I hope you you maybe learned something. And the start of pump tips from Armstrong. Okay. I hope you learned something with those pump tips. You guys have an awesome day and happy HVACing.